And we are continuing our journey about four months through the wonderful and really hope-filled book of Philippians. We're calling this study Gospel Joy because the joy that the Apostle talks about over and over and over again is tied to the Gospel. And His name is Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Philippians. Our scripture reading this morning will be 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. There are Bibles in the back if you don't have one. Uh, you can grab your Bible there. If you don't have one at all, please keep it. Uh, it's yours as a gift. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord, the infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine with you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and to be pure, blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Paul, we know, is writing this letter and he's incarcerated. He's a Roman prisoner awaiting for a trial that's outcome could possibly end in execution. Yet he's reminding this church over and over again to be joyful. Well, why not, right? Ten years ago, we learned last week that the apostle with Titus, excuse me, with, with Silas and Timothy planted this church. It was the first evangelistic effort, or known evangelistic effort in Europe. And it was planted under great persecution, yet with great joy. If you remember from Acts chapter 16, Paul shows up in Philippi, preaches the gospel to a woman by a riverside. Her name is Lydia. She's a wealthy woman of Thyatira, seller of purpose. She re- purple. She receives the gospel, uh, and, she, and, he, and she and her whole household are baptized. Next, Jesus uh, sets free through the, through the command of Paul in the name of Jesus, a demon-possessed girl who was, who was in slavery to demons and slavery to her masters. Her masters don't like it, and they beat Paul. And send him to prison. Now, the Bible says in Acts chapter 16 that they beat Paul with rods. I, I want you to understand what that means. That, that's a scourging. That's a, that's a ripping off your clothes, laying your back bare, beating you with, with a rod thicker than a thumb until your back is ripped open, bleeding profusely. Lash after lash after lash. Clothes thrown back on you while your back is ripped wide open. And they send them to jail. Where he put in a stock hold, it says. Not the ones you see. I went to Virginia. You know, you stick your head through. Nice. No, not those. They spread your legs as far as they can. They lock you in. So they're bleeding profusely. Clothes being stuck in their body. Their backs ripped open. Clotting wounds in a dungeon. Chained legs far apart incredibly cramped. And what do they do next? <laughs> Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I, could, I wish I could have been there. Like, what the are they doing? Do you see it? The church of Philippi was birthed with great persecution and great joy. That's what he's reminding them. It was the Apostle Peter who wrote to, to, to the churches in 1 Peter that were under severe persecution. He says this in 1 Peter, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and in glory and in honor at the revelation of the coming of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, talking to the churches, it's about 30 years after the resurrection. Though you have not seen him, you love him, that's Jesus. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. That is inexpressible and filled with glory. Gospel joy. Not found in circumstances, but found in the gospel, in Christ. In fact, many times we can't really know existentially, experientially. We can't really know if it is the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. Is it gospel joy unless it is contrasted with suffering? Gospel joy is a heartfelt affection produced by the Holy Spirit and is pursued and sustained as we savor and delight and find our satisfaction in the beauty and glory of Christ in the gospel in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Why? Because the gospel, the the perfect life of Jesus, his wrath-absorbing, atoning death of Jesus not only brings us into the family of God, Fully and completely forgiven, accepted and loved. But we can have in the gospel the absolute assurance and hope that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. From the love of God in Christ. And nothing can come into our life if it does not pass through the Father's hand for our good and his glory. We have that assurance in the gospel. It was MacArthur that says this. Joy is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as they receive and obey the Scripture, being mixed with trials and set their hope and their heart on future glory, end quote. So for the next few months, we're going to be focusing on the pursuit of joy, gospel joy. And we're in the book of Philippians. And you know, from last week, verse 1 and 2, a short introduction. Paul says, introduce himself, Paul and Timothy, slaves, servants of Christ, willing, obedient slaves of Christ. He addresses the whole church, verse 1b, to all the saints, those who have been set apart. All believers are saints. All have been set apart from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption of sins, Colossians 1. He's writing to all the believers along with the two offices, the two roles the, 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 in the church has already been established. Overseers, pastor elders, those who oversee the church, lead and guide and feed and protect the church. And deacons, those who serve the church. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace the unmerited, the unearned, the abounding love and favor of God towards men. And what is the result? The result is peace. God's grace brings God's peace. God's grace, his unmerited love for us in the gospel, brings us peace with God. It's the result of reconciliation of sinful man and a holy God through the death of Jesus obtained at the cross of Christ. Only when grace is received can we have peace with God. And now Paul, after his invocation, after his, 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 his introduction, begins this letter with this, this heartfelt thanksgiving to God. And, and, and it's mixed with, Joy. So this is what we'll do. We'll look at it, uh, verses 3 through 11 um, under three headings. The main heading, thanking God with joy, and gospel partnership, gospel participation, and gospel petition. So that's where we're going in verse 3, gospel partnership. Now, look in your, I have the word, I have the scripture up there. But if you have a Bible, that'd be great. Look at verse 3 with me. He says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance, literally in the whole of my remembrance, all of it. I thank him as I think of you, as I remember you. Now, the church of Philippi has been a faithful church. Their gifts, their prayers, their encouragement has undergirded, has has followed the apostle in his teaching ministry, in his preaching, church planting ministry. In fact, in chapter 4, he tells them that they alone know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that's coming to Europe, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, Paul writes, you sent me help for my needs once and again or more than one time. What a blessing. 
What a blessing it is to have a, a faithfully, a faithful, dearly loved people that, that you can count on in difficult and hard times. It was Paul that introduced the gospel there along with Timothy. And maybe med, maybe led many of those people in the church to faith in Christ through the preaching, his preaching ministry. Paul thought back and his mind was filled with, with thanksgiving and joy about this, this great, not perfect, this great faithful church. So let me ask two pointed and telling questions this morning. I'm in a question mood today. Well, as I was studying, so now it rolls over to today. So you don't have to answer it. Please don't answer it out loud. You can talk about it in your community groups. But let me ask you a couple of questions here. Number one, are you and I more thankful for stuff than we are for people? Are we more thankful for stuff than we are for people? Are, we, are you and I wrapped up in a critical judgment of others that is robbing us of thankfulness? As you think of people who have impacted your life, I could think of many. As you think of the community of faith that has gathered together and surrounds us, does it cause you and I to rise up to God with thanksgiving? If not, ask yourself, why not? Second, is our prayers always a request without substantial time giving thanks to God? If that is true, why? What does it say about us? Are, are, we, are we maybe spending too much time petitioning, which we ought to do, of course, but not reflecting on the greatness of God, the gifts that God has given us, uh, seen in the people that, has been, that have been you know, in, with us, walking with us? Is it possible? Is it possible? <laughs> This is, t- this, is, this is serious. I mean, I, this is a tough one. Is it possible that we are slowly being absorbed by the culture and becoming more of an entitled people rather than a thankful people? Don't raise your hand. Something to think about. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Verse 4, always continuous action, always in every prayer of mine for you all, for y'all, for the Southerners, for y'all, making my prayer with what? Joy. First time of, of 14 times, we'll see that word, joy, major theme. And what's interesting about this, this verse in chapter uh, 1, verse 4, in the original text, in the original Greek, the words with joy, okay, with joy comes before the words always in every prayer. They write it this way to make it flow better, but with joy is first. And what that, what, what that is saying in that verse is that joy is now the emphasis of what's going on. With joy, always in every prayer of mine. That's what Paul is saying. And again, remember, happiness is based on circumstances. True joy is based on, founded on, founded in God. Paul was in no place to be happy. But was grounded in his love and devotion and service to God. As he, as he thought about this church of Philippi and it brought him great joy. Happiness is horizontal. Focusing on the things around you. Gospel joy ruins the, rules the heart. Even while in trials because it is upward. It is, it is that God is in control. Bruce Barton. Um, some of you community group leaders have. We've handed out the community group leaders. Uh, application Bible. A life application Bible is a commentary. But he wrote something I thought was really good. I want to share it with you. For those that, that don't have that commentary. He said this. True joy is found only in relationship with Jesus Christ. Joy is the gladdening of the heart that comes from knowing Christ is Lord. The feeling of relief because we are released from sin. It is the inner peace and tranquility we have because we know the final outcomes of our lives. And it is the assurance that God is in us and in every circumstance, end quote. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, in which he would then go to a mock trial and be crucified, gathered his disciples together and said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you. My joy, not joy of the world, my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Obviously, for Jesus and for Paul, joy was separate, but sustained them in their circumstances. And now before we leave this verse, I want to ask another question. Again, don't answer it. Just think about it. 
Do we make it easy for others who think about us, whom we've asked to pray for us, do we make it easy for them to be joyful as they remember us and give thanks? Oh, I got to pray for him again. <laughs> Such a difficult dude, you know. I just, uh, Lord, help me through my attitude. Or is it, I, I want to. I give thanks for him, for her, for their ministry. He said, I, I give thanks. Making my prayer with joy. Verse 5, because. I have a grateful heart. I have a thankful heart. I have a joyful heart. Verse 5, catch this. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the day I was there until this very moment, 10 years later. The word partnership is where we get our word koinonia or fellowship. Our word fellowship, a Greek word koinonia. It, as I mentioned quickly last week, has a lot more to do with just having a cup of coffee together. That word is, it means to have a common interest, to have a, a common and collective interest and activity together that the Philippian church and Paul shared together. They were in the practice of not only, not only joining their hearts together, but in practical ways of bringing the good news of the gospel to others. And I want you to see that context this morning. Paul is praising God for them, not only because they shared their faith, because they were willing to sacrifice their comforts for the cause of the gospel and for Christ. Remember, Paul's writing this letter because Epaphrodites from Philippi traveled 800 miles to Rome to bring him gifts to help him in the ministry. Okay? And, 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 and there was this mutual cooperation involvement that he and the Philippians had together in this work of, of ministry, in this work of gospelizing the lost. And he's thankful for it. Dr. D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar when speaking of, of partnership. He, he states this. In the first century, he says, if Harry and John bought a boat to start a fishing business, they entered into a fellowship, into a koinonia. He says, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. I want you to catch that. Very important. Very important in the whole letter. I think it's best to describe this word partnership as gospel-centered partnership. Listen, there's nothing wrong with having a cup of coffee, having fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, going for lunch. I mean, not only is there nothing wrong with it, it needs to be done. It's imperative for spiritual growth. But there's much more going on here than just that. We share a partnership in a common mission of bringing glory to God through the gospel, through making disciples to the world. And through the gospel family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters and co-workers with believers around the world with one mission, to see Christ and the gospel proclaimed and people respond. It's one thing to have Christian fellowship, but it's another thing to have a gospel-centered partnership, co-workers on mission together. And what gives Paul joy and thanks? Co-workers, a community of people on mission to declare and demonstrate the gospel. The gospel was not only the background of, of this fellowship, this, this koinonia, but it was its aim. There's no gospel, they would have no partnership. The bond was the gospel, the advancement of the gospel united them, and he's thankful. He's not, he's not just, it's not just being thankful, hey, we spent vacation together, we're doing things together. No, this was particular, a firm faith in the gospel and them gospelizing, sharing the truths of the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith in the difficulties of life, and that brought Paul joy. You can have a church try to unite around things, uh, even, even, let's say we try to unite around things like wealth, and you're, you're gonna, you're gonna exclude poor or the rich. Depends. If you unite around habits or causes of this world, you're gonna exclude those who don't care. If you unite around intellectually, uh, intellectually unite, you, you'll exclude the simple or the intellectual. 
depending on what it is. But when our unity is, is the fellowship, the loving of Jesus, the proclaiming of Jesus, where every single person on the planet comes to God through the same means, the cross. To acknowledge we all, every single child of God, must acknowledge their utter sinfulness and their their total insufficiency to save themselves. We have that in common. The gospel and the advancement of the gospel unite the poor, unite the wealthy, unite the scholar, unite the common folks, unite those of every ethnicity, every cause, every culture. They unite, dare I say, Republicans and Democrats to a common goal and an aim. God's glory. Live on mission for the glory of God. The work of demonstrating the gospel in love and good deeds and a declaration of the gospel. Everyone, everywhere is called to repent of sin and believe the gospel. Trusting alone in Christ. Trusting alone in his wrath-absorbing, atoning sacrifices, glorious resurrection from the grave three days later. He is our only redeemer. He is our only savior from sin. He is our only reconciler between a holy God and a sinful people. That will bring us together. This work, this gospelizing, it's a collective work, as we mentioned, but it's a confident work. Look at verse 6. And again, keep this in context. Look at verse 6. And because of the partnership of the gospel, verse 5, first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence, look at the context. Why is Paul sure? Some of you have, I think NIV might be confident. Why is Paul confident that he who began a good work will bring it to completion? Well, number one, he's confident because God is the one doing the work, right? You see that. God will continue what he started. He will complete what he began in the life of the Philippian church when the gospel was preached and the church was birthed. God will do that. His confidence is in God, the knowledge of God, of who he is, and his saving grace. Don't miss number two, though. Paul's knowledge of the Philippians' faith, yes, and what God is doing, yes, but also the context is gospel participation. So although many people apply this verse to individual salvation, there's some implication for that. Remember what Paul is talking about. The context is the gospelizing, the sharing of 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 the common activity of the gospelizing the community and the world. A common interest, collective activity that they shared together. Paul's confidence that God will complete what he started is not only because of who God is. It is the evidence, listen now, it is the evidence of gospel mission in the life of the believers in Philippi. It's not that our salvation is grounded or founded as we partner together. I'm not saying that. It's nothing you do. But Paul doesn't say, you know what, I got a letter. Um, Epaphrodites came and told me, y'all, just sitting around, relaxing, sitting back, only caring for yourself. And therefore, I am confident that God who began a good work in you will complete it. That's not what he says. He says, on the basis of the evidence that I'm hearing about you and see what I've seen about you, the work of God in your life is clearly seen through the participating in gospel mission. It's the evidence. And therefore, I am sure God is at work with you and God will complete what he started. You see, my my concern and my fear is as we read this passage of Scripture, that some people will take this context, this Scripture out of context and take this promise out of context because they, they really have a zero interest on spreading the gospel. The lack of interest of gospelizing or sharing the good news of Christ Maybe a sign of spiritual apathy at best, but at worst, deception. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church said, look, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the test? Do we care about gospelizing? Do we care about sharing the gospel? Loving people and pointing them to Jesus and sharing all the work of Christ on the cross. If we could ask Paul, why are you so confident in this church? He's saying, look at them, look what they're doing. 
Look, look at the evidence of what they're doing. Do you remember Lydia gave her heart and then she opened up our home, Acts 16? Do you remember the jailer who gave his life to Christ and began to heal us and clean the wounds of prisoners? Again, it's not, we don't work our way into a relationship with God. It's by grace alone, but there's evidence. And Paul is saying that the people in this church have been converted and the evidence is clear by the participation in this mission, in this work of the gospel, the practical demonstrations of obeying Christ and, and, and all of that, all that evidence is producing him in, producing in them and showing Paul that they're confident that God will do the work. It's a collective work. It's a confident work. And look, it's a completed work. He will complete it. He will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. The work of God in our salvation will continue, will continue until we see Jesus face to face. It began 10 years ago for the Philippian church when Paul visited. They know it is because God is doing the work. It's an inner work. He is the one who complete what he started at the revelation of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, let that be an encouragement to us this morning. I'm encouraged to know that God is the one doing the work. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we don't participate in our sanctification. I'm, not, I'm talking about our salvation is secured in the hands of Almighty God, 1 Peter 1. I, I'm, I take confidence in that. I, I take encouragement. I want you to be encouraged by that, that. That the Lord's desire and the Lord's promise to keep working in my life, in your life, to, he's not going to let go. He's, he's not going to stop working. He's going to keep doing his work in me until I see him face to face. Now, some, some of you here this morning may have had a significant other person in your life, walk away during tough times. A husband, a wife in the midst of a difficult, a child, a close friend. They didn't want to stick around. You felt alone. It felt hurt. You felt abandoned. Not so with God. He promised to see what he started completed. All the context of gospel partnership. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are partakers, that's participation, we are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God, verse 8, is my witness. I yearn for you with all the affections of Christ Jesus. If there's one thing that binds hearts and minds together, it's going through hardships and difficulties together, is it not? Military men and women who fight wars Side by side, together, have a strong bond. Family, moms, dad, who maybe lost this young child, the suffering they've, they, they've gone through as they meet others, they have a bond, a strong bond together. He's saying, listen, we've been through a lot together. And all that we've been doing and going through together, it is right for me to feel this way about you. It's right for me. There's unity. There's mutual love for one another. There's deep affection for one another, growing out of the soil of his common experience of God's sovereignty, his sovereign grace and his commitment and their commitment, their common commitment to spread the gospel. Paul is able to know their heart. They are able to know Paul's heart, his love. It's a deep love. In fact, the word heart here in, in verse 7, behold, in my heart, uh, it's not simple, you know, sentiment. It, it, it's it's uh, the, the Greek word is it, the seat of emotion. It, it is the whole personality. It's the heart. It, it's the desires. It's the feeling. It's the affections. It's the passions, the impulse, the intellect, the emotions, all of that. And what is it? What is the glue that binds their hearts together? You know, the soil, the common experience, the glue. Look what it says. It's the grace of God. From the Apostle Paul to the most humble <laughs> servant of God that we have in the New Testament anyway. And the par- any of those who participate in the gospel, who know the gospel, there is grace. There is grace. Participating in grace. It is Paul who received grace upon grace. It is Paul who relied upon grace in his weaknesses. Second Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for you, God told him. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So I'd rather boast then about my weakness so that in my weakness, Christ's power will, re- will rest on me. No truth, 
No truth will more quickly overcome division in the church than to recognize and to realize equally that we are all sinners and we are all recipients of grace. The Apostle Paul is saying, I can speak confidently. I've seen and I witnessed the grace of God that's in your life that has continued in your life. And this gospel love and affection is growing, holding this love, this, this affection is holding things together. This unmerited love of grace of God. It is the grace, Paul says, that made us brothers and sisters. It is the grace that has given us common purpose and mission to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And when those things unite us, true unity can be really among us as morning turns to evening. We know we can have unity. Verse 7b, he says... Verse 7, is right for me to feel this way about you. I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense is the word apologia. We get apologi- uh, 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 apologist, apologetics, someone who defends the, the gospel and confirmation. That word means certainty um, and uh, certainty and establishment of the gospel. And all that's related to grace. You see that? It's in the arena of grace. And what Paul is saying, I have faced many Jewish councils. I have many faced many courts and kings. And I stood all before them. I've gave arguments of the gospel. And it is the grace of God that has gotten me through that. His love for them as they join, they walk with him. It is a bond that holds them together. And Paul is talking about not just saving grace, but that grace that all of us need when we are sacrificing, when we are suffering, we are struggling for the good news of the gospel. In chapter 1, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, verse 29. Paul says this, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now the word granted, it has been granted, is actually the verbal form of grace. It has been granted to you, it has been grace to you. To suffer. It has been a privilege and a gift and a grace of God to suffer in my name. (laughs) For the Apostle Paul, for him in the gospel, for for his mission in declaring the gospel and in his understanding and thinking all that he comes against is by grace and for grace. Paul glories in this grace of gospel struggling and affliction, and it produces and sustains him through it. My imprisonment, my chains. So what Paul's saying, listen, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. I'm thankful. I have joy. My heart fills with joy because you stood by me, not ashamed of me. You weren't afraid to identify me as I'm declaring the gospel. Am I making certain the gospel? Am I defending the gospel? You parted with me. You lightened my load. You cooperated with me in the defense of the gospel. You're willing to count the costs, suffer for the gospel. That's why my heart leaps for joy. More and more, our culture, I really believe this. I'm not a prophet, okay? And I don't know what's going to happen, you know, 10 years from now. I'm not saying that. But more and more in our culture, we're moving away from truth, from certainty, And I think it's a good prayer. I think we need to pray that we as a church, as the children of God, as the people of God, will will continue to defend the gospel with certainty about our conviction, establish the truth of the gospel through the abundance of God's grace. Humble servants, resting in God's grace, his unmerited, unearned love and favor. I think we're heading in that direction if we're not already there. For God is my witness, verse 8, how I yearn for all of you with all affection of Christ Jesus. All right, he's got a lot to say about love. The word uh, yearn is a very strong Greek word, uh, earnest desire, very strong uh, uh, yearning for you. Uh, and look at the source. It's not just Paul. Look what it says. He says, I earn for you how? With the affections of Christ himself. The Apostle Paul is walking with Jesus, the power of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus living in him. And he could say unapologetically, Christ in me loves you deeply. 
Do we have the love of Christ in our hearts like that? Christ is, Paul is united to Christ. He shares Christ's love, and he's sharing that love with the church. Again, we need to think about our gospel partnership. Are we coming alongside others with the love of Christ? Are we coming alongside those who serve together the gospel, the, 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 the proclamation of the gospel with love? Are we receiving love? Are we giving love? Do we experience the joy of God in giving in this rich fellowship, coming alongside those in ministry? I have an opportunity to go this afternoon at 2 o'clock. We are a a church that have uh, served uh, both uh, global partners, those who serve the gospel overseas, and those who do it locally. We are participating with and serving and financially and praying and supporting for a church plant in Albany called Engage. Uh, Sean Nolan is uh, one of our local partners together. And today, he's getting ordained. I was part of the ordination council, and today he's getting ordained 2 o'clock. And I love him. And uh, it is such a joy to, to come alongside and to, to love and care for those who are taking up the work of the ministry and rejoicing in it. And we should rejoice together as the gospel is going out. People are sacrificing uh, for the good of the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about. The world won't understand that. The world can't get that. Can never understand this. And suffering hardship can never take it away. The world will never understand it, and hardship and suffering can never take it away. For non-Christian joy comes from the outside, or at least their pursuit of it. They can't have real gospel-centered joy from the inside. It'll be short-lived. But gospel joy is in God, who is eternal. Paul's thanksgiving emphasizes joy, partnership, assurance, affection. His body was beaten. He's chained. He's being persecuted. He, his, his heart is filled with joy. He, he, he's the most joyful free man probably in all of Rome, yet he is incarcerated and in prison. What a contrast. Gospel partnership, gospel participation, and let's look lastly at gospel petition. This last section, verses 9 through 11, is the prayer of Paul. He petitions the Lord. He prays for his partners in the gospel, expressing his desire to grow in their love, uh, to grow not only in their love, but a discerning love, an approving love, and fruitfulness for the glory of God. Verse 9. And it is my prayer. Right? Remember, he starts in verse 1. I'm praying for you with joy. And now here's my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more. The word love is the word agape. Paul is emphasizing the self-sacrificing love of Christ. The only love, that love, agape love, can only be produced by God. It is the love of God in our hearts is agape love. It is is a love of that is looking for nothing in return. It is a love that is willing to love for the sake and glory of Christ. And the model, of course, is Jesus himself who, watched out of love gave his life a ransom for sinners. But I'm sure Paul is not simply reflecting on that. He's reflecting on this the love that they have, not only in Christ, but the love that they showed him, right? Galatians 5, Paul gives us the list of the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, the attributes and characteristics of what Christ, the Holy Spirit, is doing and producing in our lives as we walk and live and be led by the Spirit. And love is the first fruit of the Spirit. Joy is second. Love is the first fruit because of the importance of love. In Galatians 5, he gives us the list of the fruit of the Spirit. But before he does so, he says the whole law is, fu- the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Family, love is the foundation of our lives. It ought to be of the Christian life. It is the most surpassing virtue. It is, it is distinctiveness of faith in Christ. Is love. Love for God. Love for others. Paul said, I speak in, in, in tongues of angels. I'm a noisy, clong, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal if I have not love. If I give all that I have, I deliver my body to be burned. I have that love. I, I am nothing. Paul says this, to abound is the verb form, to keep on abounding. 
What he's saying, he says, look, I know you have love. I know that you have sacrificial Christ love in you, agape love in you. I know that. But I'm praying that it will keep going, that it doesn't stagnate, that it doesn't sit still, that your love will continue to grow. Family, do we love more today than we did a year ago? That's a good question to ask, maybe on the day of your salvation, as you remember the baptism, your birthday, whatever. Do I love more today than I did a year ago? Our love is to abound, is to grow. Love grows for God. Love grows for others as we love people. But, but, like a river in a flood season, the, 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 the abounding of love needs to be brought within limits. Or can cause harm, not blessings. Love with what? Look what it says in the text. Knowledge and all discernment. Catch that. Epinosis. Experiential knowledge. Paul uses that word, epinosis, 15 times in the New Testament. Every single time he does, he's talking about the knowledge of God. As you experience the work and the word of God. And I think what Paul is getting at is growing, abounding in real love is done by growing in God's word. It's a deep love that is rooted in in deep spiritual knowledge and understanding. Knowledge. Then he says discernment. Moral perception. The ability to know the right action in any given situation. He's saying, listen, I want your love to grow in both knowledge of how to obey God's will generally, but also specifically how to make moral decisions based on the word of God in the give and take in the everyday life. In our existential and postmodern culture, we have done all kinds of things with the word love. Paul is st- stressing here in this text the moral insight and the, and the practical application of real knowledge and real discernment in life that we find ourselves in. And if ever there's a need, again, not a prophet, I'm just saying, if there ever a need for God's people through the word of God to have a discerning love, Because of all the things that are coming our way, man, it is today. It is the ability to know God's will, the right action, to make decisions. And may I dare say that even if we do it in love, we will look to the world as uncaring and unloving. But we're doing it according to the will of God, according to his word. Knowledge and discernment. A decision to confront an alcoholic spouse, a decision to place limits and consequences on wayward teenagers, standing up for sexual purity, and all those things we need knowledge and discernment. And you know what? It's not just making decisions that are good and bad. It's making decisions that are best over the ones that are good. Verse 10, right? So there's a growing love, a discerning love, and approving love, so that you may approve what is excellent. That word approve means to test something, to see whether or not it, 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 it holds under uh, something to be approved. Okay, so it, it, it's, it's testing something for the purpose of approving it. The ability to know true love and to put a stamp of approval on it, to affirm and to embrace the best of the best uh, of the good choices. Now, Dr. Millick said it this way, a wonderful uh, way of putting it. A growing love fed by proper knowledge and moral insight, enables one to see the best way to live in light of the day of Christ, end quote. Christ's love is controlling us. Deep knowledge of his word enables the Christian to be completely discerning of his will. And that will lead us to what? Look what it says, excellent. The word excellent is the word that means to differ. And what Paul is saying here is this. That you would love, your love would grow through discernment, knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve, put your stamp of approval on what is of most value. We have a lot of things that we do that's good. But he's saying you need to know and have proper value on the things and to place things in proper order. What's most valuable, what's worthwhile, what is excellent, what really matters. That's what Paul is saying. Again, it's not just good decision, bad decision, it's what's best. And notice the succession here. Love, controlled by biblical truth and practical insight, leads to pursuit of excellence 
And what that will come, what that will form now is, what does it say here? Purity and blamelessness. Pure means unmixed, a heart that is unmixed, transparency. Blameless means without stumbling, not causing offense. Personal integrity, relational integrity. Paul prays for these people to live in purity, to be honest and, and, and forthright, be transparent. Don't cause stumbling blocks. Be blameless. Don't cause people to stumble. And be ready for the day of Christ. Be ready for the day of Christ. And this prayer was for them to live in such a way. Look, verse 11 brings forth a harvest of righteousness. Filled, I love it, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness is the work of Christ in us. Now, let me just, just really quickly, let me just say something here. Uh, all the commentaries talk about it. Uh, I think maybe just let me just really quickly say there's, there's a righteousness in Scripture that's given to the believer by faith alone, a declared righteousness, an alien righteousness that comes from outside us. It's the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed, counted to your account by faith alone in Christ alone. It is the righteousness, the justification that allows us to be declared not guilty and be forgiven of our sins and be given a righteousness that we could never earn. That's one kind of righteousness. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about practical right. He's talking about practical righteousness, not positional. He's talking about living rightly. In fact, the word filled, something that was completed in the past, done by someone else for us. So you're being filled. God has done the work in you, completely filled. God's doing the work with the fruit of righteousness that comes through on account of Jesus. Okay, you see that? He's saying we want the Holy Spirit to produce in these things in your life that will produce a harvest of righteousness, of right living, of doing the right thing. Okay? And I, and, and I want you to see this. Paul starts with the seeds of love and he ends with this righteous harvest. Look at the text. A seed of love is planted and it sprouts. It abounds more and more. It is received and as it grows, there's two stakes. For this plant to grow, knowledge and all discernment. And while, while guided in its growth, it comes under its control and it starts to blossom. At first, we approve what is excellent. And then it blossoms into a flower of holiness, purity of heart, and outer conduct of integrity. To live in such a way that Christ would work in them the harvest of moral and righteous living that would be acceptable to the day of Christ. That's the prayer. But why? Why, Paul? Why would you pray that prayer? Why, what are the things? What's the point? Why are you so joyful and thankfulness or thankful in this prayer? Why? Look what it says. It is for the fame and renown of God. The ultimate goal, to the glory and praise of God. Paul opened with thanksgiving, expressing his joy, his deep affection for the Philippians, and he closed this, sex, this section with a doxology to the glory and praise of God. There's no other higher purpose in life than God's glory. His infinite greatness is an incalculable worth that is the radiance of his moral perfection, his uncorrupted character. And Paul knows you don't glory in God in order to do something. You glory in God. It's the end Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. All the love that we have, all this abounding, discerning, approving, sincere love with, without blame for the fruit as it produces fruit of righteousness ultimately should point to what? The greatness of man? No, the glory of God. That's what it says. His infinite worth. The highest aim of our God is to reveal his glory. He does everything for the sake of his glory. He will not share his glory with another, Isaiah 48. He created us for his glory, Isaiah 43. And when God gets glory, church, we get joy. Psalm 105, 3, glory in his name, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Why would we rejoice? Because if God's glory is the highest possible good, then we will find our greatest joy in the revelation, proclamation, in the seeing and savoring 
of God's glory. There is no other greater existence in the universe than his glory. And therefore, there is nothing in the universe that will give us and bring us greater joy. To seek the glory of God, therefore, is not contrary to joy. In the end, we we deny ourselves for the sake of the Lord's glory. And we're not giving up anything. We're experiencing the fullness of joy in his presence. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For all eternity, we'll find our joy in infinite glory of God. Of course, got to quote John Piper, right? All who cast themselves on God find that they are carried into endless joy by God's omnipotent commitment to his own glory. As the band comes up, family, let me tell you one last thing. What I believe the Lord would want us to hear. Our lives need to be a doxology to the glory and praise of God. As part of the endless joyous commitment to God's glory. Joy comes from joint participation in the gospel. The demonstrating and declaring the gospel. Joy comes from participating in the grace of the gospel. Defending and confirming the gospel. Joy comes from growing in love and holiness with a harvest all to the praise and glory of God. And the praise and glory of God brings our joy to consummation. Jesus, who is the gospel, he's the supreme glory of God. And as we praise him, we get joy. Because as they say, you don't praise what you don't enjoy. Let us pray. Father, I'm reminded again, the missions, the the gospel demonstration, the gospel declaration exists because people don't worship you. Lord, we, we as your children know the gospel, love the gospel, receive the gospel, trust in the gospel. His name is Jesus, and we experience joy. And it is our hope as a church that we will participate in partnership and participate with those around us for the declaration and demonstration and declaring of the gospel. Let us be a, let us be a church centered around Jesus the love that he has shown to us that we should show to other, the mercy and kindness that he's shown to us in the gospel we should show to one another, the forgiveness and, and, and the mercy and, and just the, the overwhelming generosity of the gospel should propel us to show that to others. So help us to do that. Lord, to a world that so desperately needs to see and savor Jesus. Have their sins forgiven and know you eternally. Father, help us and propel us on mission. Give us somebody this week that we can talk to about the love of Jesus, the goodness of the gospel. Help us not to remain silent, but to look for ways to bridge a gap, to share the good news of Jesus to a world that so desperately needs to hear him. In Jesus' good name, amen.